Welcome to the Responsibly Different mini-series exploring the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, helping you set meaningful goals in 2023. Welcome to the Responsibly Different mini-series featuring the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. In this episode, Ben and I will be discussing goal number 10, reducing inequality. The objective of this goal is to reduce inequality within and among countries. Reducing inequality, where to even begin? To get us started, here's the intro of the progress happening on reducing inequality for 2022 from the United Nations. And I quote, The COVID-19 crisis has exacerbated global income inequality, partly reversing the decline of the previous two decades. Weak recoveries in emerging markets and developing economies are expected to raise between-country inequality. Globally, the absolute number of refugees in 2021 was the highest on record. The war in Ukraine is creating one of the largest refugee crises of modern times. We'll link to the full progress report in the show notes so you can continue reading that on your own. The reality is there is so much to unpack when it comes to inequality globally, nationally, and right down to our own backyard. We can't possibly cover it all in a single episode. In fact, that could be a whole series in unto itself. For this episode, we're going to start off with how inequality can show up in the workplace And then we're going to pivot to focus on target 10.3, which is, and I quote, ensure equal opportunity and reduce inequalities of outcome, including by eliminating discriminatory laws, policies, and practices, and promoting appropriate legislation, policies, and action in this regard. We'll be diving deep into one very specific example of a public policy that has created deep inequalities here in the United States, the war on drugs. Before we dive in, we do also want to give you all fair warning that this episode does contain explicit language and depictions of violence, as you will hear firsthand from someone who was directly impacted by these unjust policies and practices. We will give you another warning later in the episode as we prepare to share that story with all of you, but just want to make sure it's on your radar as we dive in. Now might be a good time to start looking for those headphones. And of course, we won't leave you hanging. We have solutions from experts as well as to how you can have an impact and get involved in a meaningful way. Let's get started in the workplace. To set this scene, we're pulling from episode 21 in our conversation with Sweet Liberty's founding CEO, Diana Marie Lee, and her co-lead, Samuel Gonzalez. Sweet Liberty is helping leaders transform the spaces where they live, work, and play into healthy, life-affirming environments. Here is Diana. Overwhelmingly, if you look at the data from like the American Psychological Association or like on a global level, the World Health Organization, money is no longer the number one stressor for people. It's work. And when you ask people, well, what is it about work that has you so stressed out? They say how I'm treated at work. The level of discrimination and harassment that they say that they, they feel at work, regardless of their identity. 
So I'm talking about people of color and white folks, everybody. But what's interesting is the data also shows if you're someone who has intersecting identities that are normally on the margins or oppressed or invisibilized, you know, um, someone with a disability, someone with a mental illness, someone who identifies as queer or a person of color, et cetera, then there's, there's, the numbers are staggering. You're talking about 70% or more of those folks saying, at work, I'm not comfortable. At work, I'm not valued. I'm not appreciated. At work, I get sick. So I think that one thing I can say is that it's a systemic problem that we have to address, like as a public health issue. And creating systems change is hard work. Here is Samuel Gonzalez, creative strategist and co-lead of Sweet Livity, expanding on why systems change can be hard both personally and professionally, and that that change is possible. The systems that are in place are made to be in place and not change. And this is true of all systems, uh, family units, uh, a, a software program, <laughs> anything. You pull something out, the system has to compensate for that missing piece. So it will write itself. And either if it's a software, it will like crash because it doesn't have that one piece or it will develop something, it will, it will change itself to make it work. And that's what we do in family systems. When there's a divorce or there's a death, the family unit shifts and has to adjust that there's a huge loss. Um, and so there's a lot of these things that have to happen on a systematic scale for businesses, but they don't, we don't have that framework. So we just continue with business as usual um, doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. And it doesn't happen. And so it's really uh, jarring when people get that and like, holy, holy Moses, I got to change everything. Um, But it's also freeing to know that you and we as individuals, not to mention collectively, have the power to create new things that work for us and the people in our communities. To tie this together, thinking about the power an individual has within a family unit or a work team and how their absence can ripple into a multiple of ways illustrates two points. One, that we all have the power to initiate and create change. And two, that ensuring people feel valued in the workplace is important. If people feel valued and can show up as their full self, they will be more fulfilled and more likely to stick with the organization longer. Eliminating the need to fulfill the gap one person can leave behind. Sweet Livity, what Samuel and Diana are working towards is helping those in their community that do have that missing gap after one has left. We asked Diana and Samuel what some common issues are that they run into when supporting organizations in their work. Here is what Diana had to say. What we find is like people might say, oh, we think we have an issue around gender or we think we have an issue around race or what have you. And so we can already know they're already single storing each other because they're, they're only looking like at one aspect of people's identity and think like, that's the thing. If we can just figure out that one thing. And so like, no, no, no. Actually, everybody has intersecting identities and likely in your workspace, some of the identities I carry are privileged and some are not. And we need to like actually help you navigate all that so you can figure out like what's the real issue. Is it race? Is it gender? Maybe. But it's usually likely something else that's not specifically related to identity. 
is how people's identities are actually perceived and valued or not. And which of your identities do you know in this space are the ones that I can reveal or like um, heighten and lift up because that's how success is measured here. I want to emphasize that last line, how success is measured here. How are you in your business measuring success? What does it mean to your team? And what does it mean to how they show up every day? This barely scratches the surface, but raises some great questions that we hope you carry with you to your place of work. We encourage you to go back and listen to SDG number five, gender equality, and the other previous goals, as many of them touch on various inequalities around the globe. Let's now turn our attention to a public policy that has supported the United States in having the highest incarceration rate in the world, with over 2 million people confined in prison, the majority of which are for nonviolent crimes. Back in episode 28, we had hip-hop pioneer Fab Five Freddy on the show to talk about the war on drugs. You might remember Fab from the late 80s and 90s on MTV, putting hip-hop in the living rooms of millions of Americans. His recent documentary on Netflix, Grass is Greener, dives into how the war on drugs was really a war on people of color. During the production of that film, Fab met Bernard Noble, who was given a sentence of 13 years in prison for possession of cannabis. Here's Fab sharing the story of how he met Bernard and some of the impacts of the war on drugs. I was making a film called Grass is Greener about the history of cannabis in America, its connection to music from jazz, which was born in where Bernard is also born in Louisiana, New Orleans. And I wanted to follow that story through all cutting edge American music. Cannabis has been a dominant part of all the cool, coolest people have all indulged in the plant. But then you have this incredible, heinous, barbaric criminalization, which was all racially motivated. And in doing the research for the film, I learned that because jazz was bringing people together from different ethnic backgrounds, racists did not want to see that happen. And so they came up with this whole demonization of cannabis, the the reefer madness era in the 20s and 30s. And this guy named Harry Anslinger, who was behind all of that, got cannabis criminalized in 1937. So I followed that whole story, but I needed to also look at the criminal justice situation, which has disproportionately affected black and brown. And Bernard's case was one of several I I looked at to focus in on to get the whole story. And that's how I then decided, I'd seen that Weeda kit, that was a vice show where the gentleman uh, that was hosting that show focused on Bernard's story, but Bernard was still in prison. So he was with the, with his family and it was a real moving, sad story. Keep in mind, this all happened to Bernard over two joints worth of cannabis and the mandatory minimum laws. Yes, he had been in some trouble before, all nonviolent possession cases and two joints worth of weed gets him a 13 year sentence, hard labor. And I just was like, this is the case. And so that was it. I focused in on it. And then after interviewing his family, if you see Grass is Greener, you'll see it's a very like touching, emotional moment. Then we heard he got a parole and I knew we were going to took the crew. We flew back to Louisiana to capture that moment of him walking out of prison. And that's how we first met. 
And that motivated me, call to action, if you will, to want to really do something, be a part of the business, but also try to affect change. Also in that episode, we had Sarah Gersten, the executive director of The Last Prisoner Project, on the show to help contextualize Bernard's experience. The Last Prisoner Project is a national nonpartisan nonprofit organization dedicated to cannabis criminal justice reform. They aim to end America's policy of cannabis criminalization, as well as repair the harms of the discriminatory and counterproductive crusade that is the war on drugs. Here's Sarah walking us through some highlights on the history of the war on drugs. When you think back to the war on drugs as sort of the campaign that was launched by Nixon in the 1970s and sort of doubled down on by Reagan uh, in the 80s, it's clear, and even one of Nixon's advisors has stated, you know, the impetus behind those laws was not to protect public health or public safety. It was really to criminalize Black Americans, the anti-war left. But even looking back to other times in American history where we have criminalized drug use, starting in the late 19th century, we banned opium really because of anti-Chinese sentiment um, and wanting to target Chinese Americans. And then, of course, when you move on to the 1930s and the Marijuana Tax Act, Anslinger, who was the drafter of that law, again, has made it very clear, very obvious from his statements, from the legislative history, that that law was designed to target Black and Brown Americans, to target communities of color. And so when you think about the war on drugs as a public health initiative or a public safety initiative or a criminal justice initiative, it has been an abject failure, right? We've sunk billions of dollars into enforcing these laws that have had no benefit on public health or public safety. They've devastated countless lives and with no real positive things to show for it. But if you look at the war on drugs as a tool of racial animus, as a tool to criminalize communities of color, then it's been a huge success. And we certainly see that play out today with the ramifications of these laws when we look at the disproportionate effect on communities of color. Right now, Black Americans are almost four times more likely than white Americans to be arrested for marijuana possession, despite equal rates of usage. And when you look forward into the criminal legal system from arrest to sentencing to getting charged and getting a lengthy sentence of incarceration, those disproportionalities are only exacerbated. So about 75% of Americans that are currently incarcerated for drug possession are Black Americans. And so again, it's, it's very clear this is based in fact that the war on drugs has always been a tool of racial control. As we hear those stats, it's important to remember that every single number is a human life. A human life that when incarcerated has impacts beyond their own. Impacts on whole families, neighborhoods, and communities. 
these practices that have historically happened have major impacts. Yeah, and I see this day in and day out in my work. Unfortunately, my work does not really end with my client. I get very connected with the families of the individuals who are suffering from being incarcerated. And it, of course, impacts those families and particularly the children of those that are incarcerated. Of course, that comes with so much trauma and just dealing with losing a parent, losing a primary earner in the household. And unfortunately, we see that the impacts of our criminal legal system are really intergenerational. If you have an incarcerated parent, you are much more likely yourself to be impacted by our criminal legal system. And so, of course, you can see how one, not even, you know, one person being incarcerated, one arrest record can spiral and affect not just entire families, but entire communities. I want to emphasize again that every number in a data set is a life impacted. Bernard Noble's life was impacted when he was sentenced to 13 years in prison for possession of the equivalent of two joints of cannabis. Here is one experience he shared with us from that time in his life. We feel strongly that this being Bernard's story to tell, that it isn't appropriate for us to edit his language or change the story in any way. There is explicit language and violent depictions in what you are about to hear. So if you're around other folks that you prefer not to hear explicit language or depictions of violence and injustice, now is a great time to hit pause and go find those headphones. A hundred, 120 days, you know, and again, that was those small prisons. We call them satellite camps. And, and bro, if you could just take a look at it, they swap us. They send us to their cousins. They send us to their neighbors. And it's like, we look like a damn bunch of herders. So uh, when, when I got there, I was, I was drug out in a dark van. And, you know, when the doors open, people don't know. Modern day slavery is so up to date. We just didn't have a bunch of raggedy wagons and, you know, uh, whips. But they still have chains and they got big old guns that have clips in them. So, uh, they got me out to this big old wide place. I felt the van stop when the doors open, you know, because they got the windows blacked out. They don't want us to see the streets or nothing. When they opened the door, when I got out of the van, it was like I never seen snow before because it don't snow here. I see snow on TV. So when I got out of the van, it really looked like it was snowing to me because I saw a bunch of men of color sitting on buckets with rag tied on their head. It reminds me of like a old slavery picture of black men singing hymns on buckets. So he dragged me out the van and Redneck told me, he said, well, boy, and he called me a boy. <laughs> he called me a fucking boy. And when he told me that, about, about seven foot tall, big old redneck. So I looked at him and it, we, he told me, you could get the picking. I say, pick what? <laughs> he said, that's goddamn cotton. Um, and I just respond with, boss, I got 14 years, basically, because it was a few months from being 14 years solid, it was 13 years and a third. So I was pushing 14 years to the max. And I told that man, 
you could take me to the hole because I'm not picking cotton. And they're so racist against people, color shit. He didn't hesitate. He dragged my ass to that van and he left me there for about an hour. But when he got me back to the jail, they threw me in the room and I learned to manipulate myself and how to live in a room that size of a bathroom for over 120 days. And that was my scheme when they wanted me to modern day slaverize myself. I say, oh no, player, I got 14 years. You could take me to the damn hole. So that was my crazy man thing that helped me make it through the prison because I refused to, to work like that. I got beat by them motherfuckers. They done slapped me upside my head. I, I'm hogtied when I, when I get drunk in a room anyway. You know, so I took a few bruises, but I told them, you could beat my body, but you ain't going to turn me into no slave, boy. So I locked up in that little room and they didn't care about doing it. So I learned to love it. Today, in the United States, there are more people of color in prisons than were enslaved in 1850. And there are companies today that are profiting off of the labor of inmates utilizing the loophole created in the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment is important because it abolished slavery and involuntary servitude except for as punishment of a crime. This created a loophole in the law that was quickly exploited by lawmakers that had previously enslaved people. Shortly after the 13th Amendment was passed in 1865, the Vagrancy Act of 1866 was passed. The Vagrancy Act forced people into employment for a term of up to three months, anyone who appeared to be unemployed or homeless. If a so-called, quote, vagrant were to run away and be recaptured, off to prison they went. And using that loophole of the 13th Amendment of except for punishment of a crime, prisons would loan inmates out to plantations for labor. It was not uncommon for a recently freed enslaved person to find themselves back working on the exact same plantation that they had been freed from. But now under even worse working conditions because now they were the responsibility of the prison and not the plantation owner. And this context is so important to know and understand as we work to create meaningful systems change that breaks down and eliminates not just inequality, but these vast injustices. Sarah goes on to explain how even once released from prison today, our public policies continue to create large gaps in access and equality for the formerly incarcerated. So unfortunately, we really do not provide the resources and the tools that someone needs when they're coming home from incarceration. We actually set up a lot of barriers to successfully reentering. When you come out of prison, you literally have the clothes on your back. You generally don't have any money or a very small amount of money. You don't even have a license. And you have to immediately go find stable housing, go find stable employment, or you will be in violation of your parole or your probation. And of course, when you have a criminal record, especially if you have a felony offense, it's very difficult to secure housing, to get employment, to even get bank loans. And so of course, 
the system is sort of designed for failure. And that's why we see incredibly high recidivism rates in this country. Nearly two thirds of individuals re-entering will be reincarcerated within three years of release. And so that just shows you again, you know, that does not mean that two thirds of people coming out deserve to be reincarcerated. It means that we have set up a system that is designed to fail those that have been impacted by our criminal legal system. We see again with another sustainable development goal that there are systems that were designed that today are still causing significant harm. We need to correct those wrongs. So we asked Sarah, what can we do? What policies would begin to change that system for the better? So the first would be automatic expungement. And so expungement is not just the clearing of someone's record, but actually destroying the record so that it can no longer affect someone's ability to get a job, someone's ability to find housing, um, all the ways in which a criminal record can be a hindrance in someone's life. But the key is that it is automatic. So what we've seen and what we saw in a lot of the earlier states that legalized was that they had a petition-based process. So in the state that I was coming from, um, Massachusetts, one of the first states to legalize, they made it a, a very simplified petition form for someone to fill out to get an expungement for a marijuana offense. But unfortunately, we see an incredibly low amount of eligible individuals actually take advantage of those kinds of petitions. You might need to hire a lawyer, which of course costs money. You have to access your criminal records, which costs money. Um, You have to know that you're eligible for these laws. You have to know that these laws exist. You have to know how to navigate this process and understand some of the legalese that are built into these forms. And of course, if English is not your first language, that's going to be even more difficult. So we really need to ensure that the burden is on the state to automatically identify people that are deserving of this kind of relief and then do the work of clearing and destroying those records. So that's the first thing. The second thing would be really broad resentencing, again, for anyone that is in prison for a nonviolent marijuana offense. And that piece is a little trickier. Um, We've seen very few states try to do this. And the ones that have, have been for a very limited class of individuals. Um, And that's because, again, the system is really designed to keep people in prison and put them in prison for a very long time. So it's very rare that we see people incarcerated for simple possession. Um, They have other offenses. Usually if someone is gets a charge for selling, distributing, or manufacturing marijuana, you'll also get hit with a money laundering charge or other financial crimes or a fraud charge. And so it's not enough to just say we can only find the nonviolent marijuana offenders, which that word in and of itself, nonviolent, um, is not a true dichotomy in the criminal legal system. And so we're excluding a lot of really deserving people when we narrowly tailor those laws to only affect people that might have a simple marijuana possession charge. And so it is up to all of us to continue to learn and unlearn our histories, take that knowledge and put it into action today. As Fab shares, we're all on a learning journey and there is always more to know and to do. 
I mean, the key thing is to be aware. Like, grass is greener. I've been a cannabis aficionado for a long time. I didn't realize some of the things that I found in the film, like how aggressive. I mean, even the use of the term marijuana was, was put in place to make cannabis sound more Mexican because it was states that bordered Mexico. Mexicans had been using cannabis and they wanted to give it this name marijuana to make it sound more exotic and to make it easier to focus on those people and the demonization of the jazz musicians way back in the 20s and 30s, like Louis Armstrong, uh, Duke Ellington, all of these people were uh, persecuted and hounded. So it's just an interesting story when you get the info, you connect these dots and you go, oh, now I see what's been going on. It's an incredible fight. We've been winning some battles, but the, the war to end the war on drugs is still ongoing. We'll leave you with these words from Sweet Liberty's Diana Marie Lee to carry with you as you do this work in your professional and personal life to remind us all to stay anchored in love. But honestly, this is, this is love work. The work of creating equity and safety for everybody in the space that you co-create with other people. Like that is really um, humbling work. And it requires a lot of love and a lot of compassion for yourself and other people. So what I would say to folks listening, no matter where you are in your journey of creating spaces where people work together to do amazing work together, like just love up on each other and love up on yourself and have a lot of compassion for each other and for yourself. Like we can, we can do it different. It's worth it. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode about United Nations Sustainable Development Goal number 10, Reduced Inequalities. Again, we focused in this episode on target 10.3, ensure equal opportunity and reduce inequalities of outcome, including by eliminating discriminatory laws, policies, and practices, and promoting appropriate legislation, policies, and action in this regard. We have a ton of resources for you to explore in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast player, including some book recommendations and some Black-owned bookstores that you can support. With all of that, those links and resources are still barely scratching the surface. We want to encourage you to continue learning and growing in this work. We also encourage you to listen back to the previous episodes of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss out on the upcoming episodes. Thank you. We appreciate you. Until next time, be responsibly different. Slow it down, it's okay. It's on my own bright future in the lights today. I can show you too. Like it's 1962. Got a bright future. In the nick of time, bright future. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly, Ben Marine and Brittany Angelo. We purchased this music from the amazing B Corp Marmoset Music. You can check them out at marmosetmusic.com. To learn more about us, visit responsiblydifferent.com. And to learn more about our parent company, visit dirigocollective.com. <laughs>